Welcome to Powered by How, a podcast series looking at the complexities of the energy sector and how it may be able to contribute to a lower carbon future. I'm Nisha Pillay. This podcast is produced by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco. This is the final Powered by How episode. After examining various technologies and solutions, we now ask the biggest question of all. When can we actually expect to see results? We're welcoming back Ahmed al Khoueta, who we spoke to in the first episode. Ahmed is Chief Technology Officer at Aramco and has led several Aramco technology and infrastructure projects. Also joining us is Lorenzo Simonelli, Chairman and CEO of Baker Hughes, a world-leading energy services and technology company. Dr. Jennifer Wilcox is with the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management at the US Department of Energy. Jennifer is also on leave as a professor from the University of Pennsylvania. And Dr. John Marcus Lervik is founder and chief strategy officer of Cognite, a leading software provider to the energy and manufacturing sectors. Hello and welcome to you all. Ahmed al if I could start with you. You joined us at the very beginning of this series, didn't you, to talk about the measures required to reach lower carbon goals, the essential measures. So what do you see as some of the immediate steps which energy companies themselves could take, like tackling methane emissions and flaring? Well, good to be back, Nishay. Uh, always uh, an interesting discussion. Uh, for me, I mean, the most immediate is, of course, flaring, reduction of flaring. And that is a, you know, a, a win-win for any energy company, because not only are you reducing emissions, but you're making money by saving a valuable product that can be sold. So methane, uh, rather than being flared, being uh, processed and sold, either in the form of LNG or, in, for example, in, de in developing countries, it is best used for power. So I think this is a, an opportunity for many oil companies around the world to uh, translate an emission problem into actually additional revenues. And so that's where flaring is, is clearly the low-hanging fruit. And then following that, it is the methane emissions, as you said, uh, from uh, equipment and pipelines. And that's just basically good operational practices. So that's about leak detection and rectification. Uh, so programs where uh, you know, uh, it, it's not a complex, it's not very high tech, you can do simple uh, uh, leak detection programs, manual leak detection programs. But if you want to do the, the high tech, the tools are out there. We have the satellite sensing several companies. Uh, for example, the OGCI is invested uh, in a number of companies, satellite-based companies, which we utilize for uh, trying to assess our leaks across our system. And so there's many ways of actually reducing a low cost uh, the methane leaks in, in, in oil and gas and energy systems. Uh, but I guess the next step would be carbon capture. So these are low-hanging fruit, as you say, Ahmad. If we were to have this conversation at the end of the decade, 2030, would we still be talking about this issue, flaring and methane emissions, or will the industry across the world have finally tackled it? Well, I, I believe uh, all the oil and gas climate initiative members have supported the aims of zero teen flaring by 2030. Uh, many of us are already there. Uh, so inside Aramco, for example, we've been capturing our associated gas from oil since the 1970s. Uh, it will require investment, but I do believe the majority of responsible players in the industry uh, will get there by the end of the decade. Jennifer Wilcox, eliminating methane emissions and flaring. Why haven't we seen more progress here by the oil and gas majors? 
for industry to be able to adopt the the measures to prevent emissions is that they have the tools off the shelf to be able to use. And a work that the work that we're doing in my office of fossil energy and carbon management is investing in technologies where those tools are not off the shelf today. So for instance, uh, leak tight storage tanks. And so often there's methane that's emitted um, in oil production and storage, um, you know, and there's just not, it, it's not economic to put the controls in place in terms of gas handling lines to prevent methane. And so being able to ensure that the industry actually has um, the ability to avoid emissions through the incorporation of the of the technologies like leak tight um, containers, for instance, or compressors or valves, that industry needs to be able to have access to those. The other piece I think that that's also important to consider with the leaks is that if you're truly in a situation where the, you don't have something off the shelf that you can adopt and retrofit your systems with to avoid the leaks, there could be an opportunity where we take methane as a chemical feedstock and convert it to something that's more useful. And so this is another area that we're interested in is developing catalytic systems that can be used in the field where methane is the, is the feed and you could produce ammonia, you might produce hydrogen, something that allows um, the conversion of methane rather than the direct emissions of it to the atmosphere. Uh, so, so thinking about these approaches, and in that case, that would be only really responsible if the methane is truly difficult to avoid in the first place. Lorenzo Simonelli, you work across the global energy sector. What would you say is holding energy companies back in terms of tackling this low-hanging fruit, flaring, for instance, methane emissions? Firstly, I think there's been a lot of progress made by the industry and by various companies in the sector to actually tackle uh, methane emissions. And I think when you look at what the OGCI and also other institutions have pledged towards methane reductions, there's a lot that's happening. I think clearly companies as they go through this are always struggling from a capital allocation and also the financial pressures that they face and uh, some of the underinvestment that's been in the energy space. But I'm actually very optimistic that as we go forward, uh, there's actually a big uh, strategy of reducing methane and also flaring. I look at it as a company, Baker Hughes. We have a um, capability and technology, uh, which is called Flare IQ, which reduces the flaring and flare stacks. And we're seeing our customers continuously see how they can apply it and increasing demand for that capability. The World Economic Forum has predicted digital technologies could help cut emissions by 15% globally. And yet the energy industry seems to struggle, or am I putting that too strongly, to actually scale up promising use cases across their operations. What's going on? John Marcus Lerbeck. I mean, uh, if I jump into this, I think, uh, it's it's partly, of course, uh, it's about focus and a sense of urgency. I think that's really coming now, uh, of course, with both the energy transition pressure, if you will, and as well as the energy security, uh, you know, pressure as well in many in our countries. So there's a much more sense of urgency, which which is you know necessary. I think governments are also putting in place both, let's say, taxes as well as incentives. And thirdly, uh, of course, it's also about technologies. So I think. 
in many ways, a lot of the technologies that have been developed in the consumer world over the last couple of decades are ready now to be deployed into industries, not just AI, but also more modern data integration, data management capabilities that enables us to model and optimize these very complex industrial value chains. Keep in mind, industry is much more complex than the consumer world in many ways. And also industry consists of a lot of older assets. So the, the fact that we now have uh, modern technologies that can be deployed to, let's say, commodity in, you know, industrial assets, uh, uh, you know, you know, means we are in a position now to really start to drive change in a much more scalable manner. Ahmed al Khoweita, do you think the energy industry globally is embracing the full potential of digitalization? I do believe the energy industry is a uh, cutting edge user of data. So we have always been dependent on data in our core business. Uh, so for example, you know, the subsurface is all about data. You can't, you can't go to the subsurface, you need data. And that's the only way to make decisions. So we're quite comfortable in making decisions about our uh, investments with data, with the, with the support of data and analysis of data. Um, but I think what's, what's lacking here is that was a, the business model of production of energy. Now we're talking about the business model of reduction of emissions. This is a new business model. We can leverage the data to solve this, but it needs more than just data. It also needs uh, you know, regulation and policy that actually supports the economics of these new business models. But I do believe that what's lacking is still some of the regulation policy incentives which make these new business models. So you have to optimize your business around emissions reduction. And so the optimization can be done, but at the end of the day, it has to make money for commercial entities. And that's where the policy is a little bit behind. I think that there has been some big movement on, for example, carbon capture and sequestration um, and other policies that are now very, very supportive. And I think we're gonna see a big takeoff of many of the, the kinds of business models that reduce you know, emissions from our energy industry uh, because of that. So it's a kind of, a, it's more complex than just uh, taking the data and applying it. Uh, there's huge potential in efficiency, for example, uh, in the industry. And we're applying data across our, our business to improve efficiency and reduce emissions as a result. But beyond efficiency, uh, it needs new business models uh, that actually uh, value the reduction of emissions. And that means, for example, creation of blue hydrogen, carbon capture sequestration, all these technologies which require policy first. Um, but, uh, you know, there, I do feel that we are embracing the data revolution and we do see huge potential. And I can talk about that in the technology space, especially. You know, I completely agree around that, uh, you know, the new business models. And as uh, we said a few times in Cognite, you know, it's very hard to be green if your bottom line is red. And I think, uh, so we need to have these business models actually that enables the change, right? It has to be sustainability. We have to make sustainability profitable through, of course, being more efficient. So better PLs through taxes, through, you know, regulations as Ahmed uh, just said. It's uh, very, very important. Jennifer Wilcox, you work in the US Department of Energy and are an expert in carbon capture and storage and have been for many decades. The recent Inflation Reduction Act has just in the last few months increased incentives for carbon capture projects. In your opinion, how soon can we level up these CCUS timelines to make a discernible impact on decarbonization of the energy sector? Uh, so the Inflation Reduction Act provides a federal tax credit it's called 45Q, 
and the federal tax credit provides up to $85 per ton of CO2 captured and stored um, for point sources. So for instance, it could be from power plant, it could be from the industrial sectors like cement or steel. And then there's a second aspect, which is looking at direct air capture from the atmosphere. So this is very different. So this is the accumulated CO2 in the atmosphere. And it's known now that carbon removal from the atmosphere is a critical tool that we'll need to achieving net zero greenhouse gases. In the United States, our goal is net zero greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. And the carbon removal or direct air capture is one example. It's gonna be critical to counterbalance truly hard to decarbonize sectors like agriculture and parts of the transportation sector. And so the federal tax credit uh, for direct air capture is $180 per ton of CO2 captured in stores. And through the bipartisan infrastructure law, the government pays 50% of the capital investment and the 45Q federal tax credit can be stacked on top of that. And so these first of a kind demonstrations for carbon capture on natural gas, power, for carbon capture from cement, say, um, direct air capture, they're gonna be critical. And so the key is what we need to hit is really on the order of millions of tons of tens of millions of tons over the next decade of capture of CO2 and injection deep underground um, in order to be on track to get to the gigaton scale by mid-century. Lorenzo Simonelli, have the incentives changed now with oil and gas prices so high? I think as you look at the current landscape of the energy trilemma with affordability, sustainability and security, governments around the world are all working on the policies and the regulatory foundation that's required to incentivize the continuing move to lower carbon emissions fuels. And you're seeing that within the United States with the Inflation Reduction Act, as well as across Europe with different policies and carbon pricing. And it's important that uh, we have the right regulatory framework, the right policies in place, and the right incentives. If you look at uh, renewables, they didn't happen overnight. They happened over the course of multiple decades with subsidies in place. And you look at their cost position now, being competitive. And the same will be there for the continuing energy mix. Ahmed al Khoeita, Aramco has made a huge drive to scale up CCUS, carbon capture technologies, as part of reaching its own decarbonization targets. When are we like to see carbon capture technologies being made cost effective and therefore ready to deploy in other sectors? So I want to start first with an announcement we made recently. So we announced that we'll be building one of the largest carbon capture and sequestration hubs here in Saudi Arabia, in Jubail, which is an industrial center. And that project is proceeding now. So that's just the first phase. And we're planning to do much larger carbon capture projects beyond that. And that's because the technology is ready today for what I would say are concentrated streams and re at reasonable costs uh, with the existing incentives that are available. We can capture and sequester with existing technology economically a lot of CO2 that is in high concentration streams. But the next step is how do we get the more expensive CO2? You know, the more dilute CO2 streams, such as coming off of power plants and the hydrocarbon processing plants. That technology, we're in the phase of piloting. We think that we can reduce those costs through R&D. Some are like variations of the conventional amine-based technologies that are used today. Some are new metal organic framework materials. They allow low energy penalty capture of CO2. Those technologies are in the scale-up phase today. So we expect those technologies to be ready before the end of the decade at large scale. 
And that would allow us to really increase the capture of CO2 economically from uh, large industries and the hard to decarbonize industries. So Jennifer, you spent so much of your career working in this area as an academic. You're now working in the government sector on the regulatory side, trying to make sure that carbon capture does achieve liftoff. Can I ask you a personal question? Is it going to happen, do you think? Have we done enough to incentivize this stubborn area? Uh, I mean, I think that absolutely we have enough, but I, one of the barriers that I see uh, that we're trying to work very hard on is recognizing that when we demonstrate these technologies, we're demonstrating them in communities. And it doesn't matter if it's retrofitting a cement plant with carbon capture, injecting CO2 deep underground, or even you know windmills, right? Installations or photovoltaics. Typically communities resist technology development. And so it's critical uh, that we get this piece right. And so with all of the dollars that are going out the door associated with the infrastructure law, a community benefits plan is a key piece. And of all of the applications, 20% of the total score is based on the robustness of this community benefits plan. When I think about this from a personal perspective and being a professor in my day job, when I you know, am not in this position during this administration, I recognize that we just, we need more thinkers in this space that are not just developing technology in silos, but they're actually developing technologies that will ultimately deliver benefits to communities. And so when we look at retrofitting a cement plant with carbon capture, how can we make it even better than just avoiding carbon from emitting, being emitted into the atmosphere? What are the baseline pollutions of the plant? Can we reduce air pollution? You know, not just carbon emission, but what about particulate matter? What about sulfur oxides or nitrogen oxides? Like how can we design systems to do more and, and actually lead to benefits to communities at the end of the day? And first, in order to figure that out, you've got to talk to communities and figure out what the concerns are. And so this engagement and um, and this type of you know feedback loop for technology development is really critical in my my opinion. Ahmed al Khoeda, what about the rest of the world? How do we see some kind of global liftoff? There's quite a lot of skepticism still in Europe. Other parts of the world are doing not very much at all. Is this really going to be um, a technology that can deliver to the timelines that the IEA requires, for instance, in order to make a meaningful difference to our Paris Agreement goals? We hear a lot about the skepticism in Europe, but in fact, Europe has been a leader lately in implementation of CCUS projects. The Teesside project in the UK, Northern Lights, number of projects have shown the way and that there are a number of hubs, uh, especially around the North Sea area, which are demonstrating that Europe is actually taking a lead in developing CCUS projects. So uh, I wouldn't say it's, uh, it's that skeptical. I see a lot of interest in CCUS, of course, in Australia, uh, in, in, in the Far East. I, I think uh, uh, a hidden story, many people are not aware of the amount of investment which is going to CCUS. And it all turned around mainly due to the commitments to net zero that many countries and companies have made recently over the last few years. It really uh, made it clear to all that there's no way to get there without CCUS. And that's why the decisions have been made at government levels and company to proceed with projects that are billions of dollars 
uh, in the pipeline. Jennifer Wilcox, so the US has done a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of being committed to carbon capture technologies and trying to create a marketable industry. But if we are to meet the IEA timelines for lowering carbon emissions, this has to be a global phenomenon. How do you see the rest of the world buying in to carbon capture and when? In the United States, we have all of the levers in place to make these technologies and their retrofits economic through building the first of a kind, through the policy incentives like 45Q tax credit, and recognizing, of course, the other parts of the globe don't have those same types of luxuries. When you look at carbon capture on cement or carbon capture with pulp and paper, for instance, you recognize at the end of the day when you're doing this, you're lowering the carbon intensity of these supply chains. You're lowering the carbon intensity of cement produced, ultimately concrete maybe downstream, paper. Today, there's almost a voluntary market for these types of products. As you see a lot of corporations leaning in to net zero goals and not in control of scope three emissions like fuel, paper, um, cement and steel. And so working together to recognize that these investments can lead to low carbon supply chains and ultimately procurement of, of clean supply chains is also another driver um, that we can be thinking about. So just trying to really find ways to work together to, to have more than just lift off in the United States. John Marcus Lavick. There's also a possibility here to digitalize these projects from day one and not you know, retrofit it to drive down costs and also go more towards, let's say, carbon capture as a service, you know, carbon storage as a service. Uh, and we also see one very important thing, of course, is you have these mega projects that Aramco and, and many others are driving, but also to, to be able to shrink it down to create a more modular, standardized carbon capture uh, you know, capabilities that you can then de you know, deploy in a modular uh, way. So, for example, in Norway, we are deploying that on some of the cement fa you know, factories, for example. So I think, uh, so because, because over time, we also want to scale carbon capture into smaller environments uh, as well. Uh, and, and, th and then you need standardization, digitalization, and modularization to do that. Lorenzo Simonelli, how do you see industry, the energy sector, and society generally rethinking its emissions management and energy consumption? I think the world understands that we need more energy. And as you look at the population and the continuing development uh, of uh, certain nations and regions, more energy demand is a prerequisite. However, there's also the understanding that we need to do that in a conscious way with the aspects of climate change being taken into consideration. So as we go forward, you are starting to see much more discussion around net zero pledges, around the roadmap towards net zero and maintaining the climate change to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that being an aspect of technology, being an aspect of the right policy framework. And I think as you look at um, you know, companies around the world, now many of them are driving towards sustainability. And I think that is just the societal need to address climate change. So John Marcus Lovick, how do you see the role of data science in managing energy demand to help us rethink industrial, commercial, domestic energy consumption? What is the potential for lower carbon emissions through efficiency and using less? That's, of course, a very, very exciting uh, 
challenge and opportunity for the world uh, because we see now that uh, of course the energy generation if you will or uh, become or production becomes much more you know multifaceted uh, we see the energy uh, of course consumption become more uh, you know multifaceted as well uh, but also the good thing is we have also much more ways to we can produce we can start to store batteries and other ways uh, a lot of you know innovative technologies there as well for example a mountain lake is also a battery <laughs> for example in norway but there are many ways you can you can pump water up uh, and stuff like that and of course uh, then uh, with the new modern uh, software technologies we can also start to understand the totality of the market or, or both production consumption and storage and then then you are able to not only report and understand what's going on, but you can also start to apply algorithms and software to optimize. And that's uh, an area where we see a lot of opportunity to, uh, to uh, you know, optimize the, you know, the energy market, but also, of course, to help consumers also make better choices on how we use energy, for example, uh, you know, both from a commercial perspective, if you will, as well as more from a, an environment, environmental perspective. Can we lower our carbon footprint through better efficiency? And Lorenzo Simonelli, specifically the role of data science in managing energy demand. What is the potential for lower carbon emissions through efficiency using data analytics? Data analytics are really the next frontier as you look at driving efficiency in any operation. And the oil and gas sector, as well as the energy industry, is no different. As you think about um, just the cycle of a molecule. You have a lot of inefficiencies in turning that molecule into power with the transfer from one piece of equipment to the other with a process working at the optimization, a valve potentially failing or a pump or a gas turbine. And you're always as weak as your weakest link. And so what data analytics allows you to do is actually get that full transparency across point A to point B, seeing all of the potential breakage points and identifying prior to the breakage an actual event and being able to mitigate that downtime. So data analytics is very important, as is artificial intelligence, as is the aspect of digital twins. And I think we're only just at the beginning of the advancement of utilizing digital analytics to really drive to better efficiency. Ahmed al Khoeda, hydrogen technologies ammonia technologies, its close cousin, they're very complicated to deploy. There, to some extent, there are some indirect greenhouse gas issues. There are safety issues. It's hugely energy intensive and very expensive. So where do you see the best application of either green or blue hydrogen over the next few decades so that it's, we do this in an intelligent way? So the, the best applications that we've seen so far for these uh, new energies, these new low carbon fuels, uh, such as hydrogen, blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, blue ammonia, uh, is actually in the very hard to decarbonize sectors where you don't have much options otherwise. So for example, in the Far East and Northeast Asia, there are not many options to capture carbon and sequester carbon. Uh, in those locations where there's not too much availability of renewable energy directly, uh, using these low carbon fuels, such as ammonia, directly in power generation is, is, is an option. 
And that's one of the options that many of these countries are looking at is utilizing them to reduce the carbon footprint of power generation. Beyond power generation in those locations, which is limited to, I would say, those areas where there's not too much renewable capacity, the main application I see for hydrogen is going to be an industry for heavy industries such as steel, um, for, of course, ammonia production itself, which is a major demand of natural gas today, uh, will utilize lower carbon hydrogen for the production of ammonia, which is critical to the world's agriculture industry. Uh, and of many other petrochemicals industries which consume hydrogen, including oil refining, uh, in order to lower their carbon footprint, will have to utilize blue or green hydrogen to replace the existing uh, gray hydrogen that is used. So there's a huge market actually, uh, just in the existing hard to decarbonize energy sectors. When we move to transport, we can see that battery electric vehicles have a role to play in the light duty sector, but really can't meet the operational requirements of the heavy duty sector, especially long distance trucking, uh, and, and uh, in some cases shipping, for example. Those are very difficult to meet with batteries, uh, there's a diminishing returns with larger batteries. As you use larger batteries, you actually get less uh, emission savings because of the, the carrying the weight of the batteries. So really at a certain point, at a certain load and size, you have to move to something that's more energy dense and hydrogen is, and, and ammonia or other uh, vectors, energy, low carbon energy vectors can do that for those industries. And that's where we see a huge market growth uh, many have are predicting above 50 million barrels equivalent, uh, oil equivalent of hydrogen demand in 2050, uh, which would be a tremendous industry size. Uh, and so that's where we're, we're looking at. We're working on applications of hydrogen in these really hard to decarbonize sectors, which need a new energy vector. Jennifer Wilcox. We've seen a huge amount of investment in a whole range of different hydrogen and ammonia related projects, Jennifer. How confident are you that green hydrogen or ammonia will provide meaningful energy options for areas like long distance transport, shipping, for instance? So I, when it comes to hydrogen, I don't think there's any silver bullet. And, and you mentioned there's a lot of colors. You know, you can have pink hydrogen, which means that, you know, you're using nuclear as the energy source for splitting water. You can have green, you know, green, of course, is the most expensive today. So if you're starting with natural gas, which is how hydrogen is primarily made today through reforming of methane, steam methane reforming, and you capture the carbon in that process, uh, provided that the upstream emissions are mitigated, you know, in terms of methane associated with the supply chain of the natural gas, this can also be a responsible and clean way for making hydrogen. And the transition and the barrier um, to hydrogen production through this approach is lower today because we just have so much infrastructure in place. The big piece with using hydrogen as a fuel, actually there's two big pieces. One is, is making sure that we, we don't produce NOx emissions. And so that is one issue of hydrogen combustion and NOx is a, a precursor to acid rain. And so making sure that we're developing approaches to prevent NOx when we combust hydrogen. And the other piece about hydrogen, oftentimes we think about it from a safety perspective or from an economic loss where we don't want the hydrogen to leak. Uh, but now uh, recent work uh, has shown that hydrogen is actually an indirect greenhouse gas. And so hydrogen, hydrogen in the atmosphere uh, can react with OH 
And that is the same pathway that actually breaks down methane. And so because there's this now competition with hydrogen in those pathways that degrade methane in the atmosphere, it's an indirect greenhouse gas. And so we now need to think about our hydrogen infrastructure and making sure that we're building it in a way that's leak tight. And so this is an area of R&D that at Department of Energy we're investing in and very thoughtful in this space so that we don't have an unintended consequence as we start to really move forward with more hydrogen investments. Lorenzo Simonelli, a key concern globally right now is energy security. How can the energy majors meet net zero goals while simultaneously safeguarding and supporting global energy security? I think it comes down to a very simple rule, and that is that it is not about the fuel source, it's about emissions. And I think we've got to make sure that we focus on using all fuel sources and not categorizing some as bad, but actually focusing on the reduction of emissions at the heart of it. I look at the role that natural gas can play. In our opinion, natural gas is not just a transition, but a destination fuel. And it's important that we continue to use the abundant aspects of natural gas to fuel the energy demands of the world as we go forward. And we've got to be careful that we don't single out any one fuel source as being negative. We should focus on the element of emissions. And we believe hydrocarbons are going to be utilized for many decades to come. And let's focus on the technologies that reduce their emissions. Ahmed al We have to continue investing in the existing energy sources in order to meet the world's demand. Uh, and we can't move to plan B until plan B is ready. So we, th this means simultaneously investing in both the existing energy uh, and continue and can continue investing in new sources and alternative uh, sources of energy. When we look at the, the world demand for oil today, we see it, it's not declining. In fact, it's rising less quickly than before, but it's still continues to rise, which means we have to continue to invest. Now, I would say that the way we are doing that is by investing in lower carbon sources of oil. So people are not too much, uh, too familiar with the carbon footprint of oil itself. It actually varies quite dramatically from one producer to another. And by being responsible oil producers, what you want is the responsible oil producers meeting the increased demand. Otherwise, net emissions will increase because there's quite a difference between the most efficient energy producers and the least efficient energy producers in terms of emissions. So that's where I believe uh, we can really address this challenge, this real dual challenge, which is reducing our emissions at the same time meeting the world's energy needs today. John Marcus Lerbeck, what are your thoughts on how the energy sector might be able to meet these two challenges, which seem to be pulling in different directions? No, but I mean, it's very clear that we need to drive towards more efficient uh, and more energy or, or environmentally you know, you know, friendly oil and gas production. That's very clear and drive towards the most responsible producers. And of course, also giving incentives and maybe policies that helps also accelerate that uh, change. But I think also in addition, I also see, of course, like Aramco, but many other large uh, also IOCs are also driving uh, accelerating the drive towards the, the new energies too. So I think it's two-sided coin. We need to, of course, continue exploring uh, the, the right type of uh, or oil in the right way while also accelerating into the, the new energies, uh, you, know, you know, sources, wind, solar, of course, you know, hydrogen as well. So I think that's the, 
again, uh, we need to deliver on both plan A and plan B <laughs> at the same time. We hear a lot about the importance of partnerships, developing between energy companies, industry, governments, regulators. But what does it actually mean, do you think? What is it necessary to put in, in place in order to help decarbonize the energy sector? I think, uh, first of all, uh, if I, I have to, to jump in here a little bit, I'm, I'm coming from the technology sector. And um, over the, uh, the last maybe decade or two, there is a lot more collaborations going on between companies where you're creating ecosystems where you are basically collaborating and driving common good, if you will. I think industry has been a little bit more siloed and uh, people want to control everything themselves. I think that has to change uh, as well. So let's be inspired by that sort of environment in the, in the technology sectors to create a, a collaboration between the industrial companies themselves, Aramco and other oil and gas companies, suppliers, technology providers and government. And really, yeah, we, we need to, to create uh, aligned incentives, aligned business models that, that drives that change and not transactional relationships because that will not uh, take us into the 2030, 2050 objectives quick enough. Amadal Hoyta, how do you see the importance of partnerships? Low carbon hydrogen uh, is going to cost more than gray hydrogen, existing hydrogen. It's going to be, of course, it's going to be more expensive than existing fossil fuels. So that means we have to reward the lower emission value of that. But there's no way of measuring that actual low value. There's no difference between two hydrogen molecules. So we have to come up with new ways of measuring. And the, for example, looking at blockchain for, for transferring the value of a product from the supply all the way to the final consumer to allow them to value the difference between two molecules. We have to create new ways of transactions. Data is a big part of this. And I think Cognite is probably working hard on this as well, is how do we enable, how to facilitate these new supply chains that are everywhere. So for example, Archie is a tool we've developed that allows the per, uh, to, to track the CO2 emissions from the production of oil, from the well to the final customer at the refinery. So we can see the life cycle uh, emissions associated with every gallon of gasoline, every liter of diesel that a consumer can use. This tool makes basically the energy system transparent, the emissions associated. It's called the Aramco High-Level uh, Carbon Emissions Estimator, Archie, uh, but it will reduce some of the challenges we face in really quantifying the emissions. Of course, on top of that, we've got to do verification and validation in order to make these new energy systems and energy supply chains work. Lorenzo Simonelli, your thoughts on the importance of partnership to develop and accelerate new business models and new technologies? Partnerships are extremely important in the development of new technologies and also in the creation of the ecosystem. The energy ecosystem is not easy and it's very complex. And so you need to come together between businesses, between governments, between NGOs to actually find the right solutions. At Baker Hughes, we encourage partnerships, technology partnerships, where we're focusing on the technology and then we're focusing on an operator and EMP with regards to putting it into practice and scaling it. We're looking at multiple examples of where we've co-developed technologies 
where also we've co-developed projects and partnerships are a fundamental to the way in which we can drive towards net zero goals. And I just look at some of the examples with Aramco around uh, the opportunities of hydrogen. I look at what we're doing in uh, Norway around the CO2 and there's multiple examples with partners bringing capabilities to light. Finally, how do you think the world will be powered in 20 or 30 or 40 years time? To what extent will we have reduced our carbon fuel use or even managed to lower our energy consumption? John Marcus Lerbeck. Yeah, first of all, I think, um, of course, the, the world's population is going to grow and we want to increase the average uh, life experience, if you will, and quality of life for people. So I think uh, for sure uh, we need to produce more in this world uh, to make life, uh, people's lives be, you know, better, but we need to produce more using less. <laughs> and in particular, that comes back to uh, CO2 and, uh, and similar you know, greenhouse gas emissions. So uh, I also believe we should bring in uh, like nuclear energy and stuff like that into the mix over time as well. But then uh, we also need to be much more energy efficient, in particular in industry. Uh, so that means we need new technologies. Of course, we also need to combine that with, with carbon uh, you know, capture technologies, like Ahmad you know, talked about, that will uh, be much more uh, modularized and standardized and, uh, and cost efficient. Ahmed al -Khoy. So if you want me to give uh, my view on the future of oil and uh, gas and energy in general, uh, I think there will be a, a, a mix of energy sources in, in the future, in the 2050 timeframe. I think we're going to have much reduced emissions, number one, through the adoption of renewable uh, electricity. The biggest source of emissions, of course, is the power sector today. Um, I see huge renewable penetration, given the economics of renewables. The, big, the biggest remaining challenge to prevent that growth is storage and energy storage. And we're investing in energy storage technologies today, grid-based energy storage technologies which I think will transform and allow much greater penetration of renewables uh, into the power sector. So I see a big part of the power sector is about 20% of the energy mix uh, moving to renewable power, low emission renewable power by 2050. So that's a, a big chunk of the energy mix. Beyond that, we see a lot more penetration of natural gas uh, because that is a quick win for the emission of the world and the energy mix. So more natural gas, uh, some will be coupled into hydrogen production through blue hydrogen and carbon capture. Uh, and, uh, but, but just having natural gas to displace coal or to displace other uh, heavy emissions. As I said, the, uh, the estimates uh, from the IEA are about 50 million barrels equivalent. Uh, at least one eighth will be uh, low carbon hydrogen and, and such. Uh, I think there will still be a lot of a place for oil because I think with coupled with carbon capture and sequestration, the the use of oil will continue in, in difficult uh, sectors like, for example, aviation, where we need really energy dense fuels. Uh, I, I do believe there's going to be some penetration of hydrogen um, and electricity into aviation, but it's not going to have, uh, you know, a very large percentage because uh, it's just not can't do the jo job. We need really synthetic fuels or biofuels. Uh, that will be part of the, the mix. I don't think we're going to have zero carbon footprint. Uh, you know, just from looking at the required investments from now to then, the required development of technology, there will still be a, you know, a, a substantial share of hydrocarbons in the market. So we'll have to balance that with offsets. For example, direct air capture needs to be ramped up 
uh, beyond negative emissions need to be increased beyond uh, 2050 uh, to balance out whatever is remaining of emissions. Fascinating answer. Thank you very much. And finally, how do you think the world will be powered in 20 or 30 or 40 years time? Will we have reduced our carbon fuel use? Will we have met our net zero goals, Lorenzo? It's a very difficult question when you say, let's look into that crystal ball. From an optimistic perspective, I think we have the capability to drive the technology and the advancement of technology to scale that allows us to achieve net zero. In 20, 30, 40 years, the variety of the energy mix will change considerably. That doesn't mean hydrocarbons go away, but it means that we'll have more hydrogen, we'll have more nuclear, we'll have more renewables. And again, I think we'll have the technologies such as direct air capture that enable us to mitigate the impact of emissions from a climate change perspective. The one thing we can't do is sacrifice energy, which is a requirement that we need for the growing populations. Interesting. Jennifer Wilcox, to what extent will we have reduced our carbon fuel use, managed to lower our energy consumption and get to a sustainable energy mix? Carbon capture will play a role for sure, which means that, you know, when we look at committed infrastructure where there's a dependence on fossil fuels, that committed infrastructure to last through mid-century, like some of the newer natural gas-fired power plants, some of the industrial sectors that are really difficult otherwise, and we don't have technologies to replace. Um, the responsible siting of carbon capture on that infrastructure will be critical. But at the end of the day, when you look at our dependence on fossil fuels, recognizing that a big priority in the United States is 100% clean electricity by 2035, what that means is an increase in renewable penetration. You know, and ultimately the solution is for the transportation sector and passenger vehicles is broadening the EV fleet, you know, having more charging stations, rebates so that everybody can afford to get an electric vehicle, for instance. So you start building out that infrastructure, but you need to make sure that the grid is decarbonized. And so, you know, putting in place an increase in renewables to decarbonize the grid carbon capture on the committed infrastructure that's expected to persist through mid-century. Um, and you start to see some of the wedges and some of the dependencies on the fossil energies, and you start to see them shrink. So the big question is, are we actually going to meet our decarbonization goals by 2050? Is net zero at all realistic? Ahmed al -Khoyta. So I believe that uh, companies, individual companies can achieve net zero by 2050. And, you know, as we set a target for ourselves, but as a world to achieve net zero, uh, that's going to be very challenging by 2050. And the reason is today we're starting at a very low point. We only have about 10% of the electricity uh, is renewable, low emission electricity, uh, solar and, and wind. Uh, and that's about 2% of the energy mix, the entire energy mix. So to go from there to 100% by 2050 is nearly impossible. I mean, from, from an investment point of view, from a technology point of view, what we, what we will do is be on a trajectory that will get us there, I believe, before the end of the century. Uh, now, is that in time or not? Uh, that, that's a challenge that we have to do is really ramp up and uh, improve the technologies that we have today as quickly as possible because the existing technologies won't get us there in time. 
Whoa, now that's a heavy conclusion, Ahmed al Khoeta. So can we actually get there, meet our decarbonization goals by 2050, Lorenzo? You know, I think there's always a requirement to set a goal and to set a target and for us to do everything that's possible to achieve it. That being said, I think advancing towards it is going to be a primary importance for 2050. And it's still too early to say whether or not we can achieve it, I think. And 2030 is a key milestone that we've got to work towards in really achieving the decarbonization goals for 2050. If you look at the way we're approaching it today, you'd say, no, we're not going to achieve it. If you look at the prospects of what we can achieve in the following years and making true demonstrated change, that gives me hope that we will be able to achieve it. So a 2BC. Jennifer Wilcox, at the end of the day, we all need to have access to clean, affordable energy. Um, you know, in not every region you have renewables or, or, or non-fossil options. That's why it's so important that we have to develop the technologies so that we can make sure that the fossil fuels are produced in a leak tight way without methane emissions. And we need to make sure that we have the technologies to clean up the pollution on the downstream side of how we use the fossil fuels. And that way they can actually be part of that sustainable portfolio. And so at the end of the day, I think the wedges are going to shrink. They should shrink with all of these investments that we have, but they will not shrink to zero, you know, and that's why these development of the carbon management technologies are just so critical. John Marcus Lavik, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I, I believe I, I largely agree. I think also I could take a little bit different perspective that we tend, you know, humans, we tend to overestimate what we are able to do in the short amount of time and underestimate what we can do in the medium long term. So I would hope that we'll see an acceleration. Of course, 2050 is almost 30 years from now. So I would hope that there are technology innovations, business model innovations and regulations, other things coming actually that we are accelerating much faster than uh, we believe uh, you know, based on what we're seeing today. Yeah. I hope so. I hope so. We all hope so. John Marcus Lerbeck, Ahmed al Jennifer Wilcox, and Lorenzo Simonelli. Thank you so much for joining us for this, our final episode and powered by How. Thank you for some rich and very honest conversations. In indeed, thank you to all of you for joining us right through this series. If you haven't heard the other episodes, why not check them out now? I'm Nisha Pillay. This series has been brought to you by Reuters Plus in partnership with Aramco. Thanks so much for listening.